This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, a publication covering the entire supply chain of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Subscribe now at epmmagazine.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the MedTalk podcast. I'm Ian Bolland, the editor of MedTech Innovation News, and I'm joined by Rhys Armstrong, the editor of European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, as we discuss the latest news and issues in life sciences. Before we begin, and since our last recording was before we had a chance to thank the Health Secretary, here is what we'd like to thank Matt Hancock for. Okay, that's that done. So this week's episode will be covering more COVID-19 vaccine news, measures that are being put into place to try and get us back to normal again, the budget, and probably much more. But these, we're going to start with, well, you're the expert out of the two of us in this one, surely, with COVID-19 vaccines. But should we start with the uh, initial results from the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines, which have been well publicised by the government in the past couple of weeks? Yeah, so the important thing really about this is that it reduces the severe infections um, in in patients with COVID-19. And really, that's important because it's going to keep people out of the hospitals more than anything. So... If you do unfortunately catch COVID-19, um, you know, you're more than likely to get a mild case of it rather than, uh, you know, a, a life-threatening, dangerous case, which is um, really positive news. And it was for the Pfizer and Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines. And uh, in, more importantly, it's been shown to reduce uh, COVID-19 infections among older people aged 70 years and over. And it was uh, ranged between 57 and 61% for one dose of the Pfizer vaccine. In between 60 and 73 percent for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. So really we're just you know we're starting to see these sort of uh, further pieces of data come out as the vaccines are being rolled out across um, across the, the UK so it's really positive to, to see that it's having a good effect. Yeah as you said reducing hospitalizations is probably the most important factor in this particularly given the uh, given the emphasis that the government has put on uh, stay at home to protect the NHS message. Um, this feeds into that strategy of protecting the NHS from reaching full capacity and getting overwhelmed. But there's also been other data suggesting that uh, not only does it reduce serious infection on a lot of people, but there's been talk that, that I know in one study there's been suggestions that Pfizer has been re- reducing a um, transmission. So th- and that can only be a good news in terms of you know getting back to normal. Yeah, the reduction of transmission is really positive as, as well. I did see that the data isn't um, as solid on that yet, so clini- clinicians are still warning people to um, to act as if you can still spread COVID-19, which is uh, important to remember once you do get the vaccine that others can still catch it from you, potentially. Yeah, of course. That, that, that's, a, that's a massive factor that everyone should be mindful of uh, before, after, even a while after you've had the, had the jab. Um, a little bit more on the... On vaccine news, there, there is a report in The Guardian which uh, suggested that the Pfizer vaccine, at least, it may be less effective in uh, people with obesity. And I think people with obesity are further up the, the list in terms of priority for vaccines. Um, is this something that we should be surprised about? Or is, it, or is this just, is this just re, a rehash story? Or is this, or this is a significant revelation? Well, if you go back to this, the start of the pandemic, you know, you know, the risk of catching COVID-19 and the severity of the case 
it was linked to people with obesity as being more at risk. Um, which isn't really surprising because, you know, being overweight brings with it uh, excessive health problems. It can you know, make you more susceptible to certain things. Um, the fact that the vaccine isn't working as effectively is interesting because um, I, I, did, I don't know why that, that is, but in the research that's discussed in The Guardian, it says that healthcare workers with obesity produced only about half the amount of antibodies in response to a second dose of the jab compared with um, healthy people, uh, so to speak. Um, they, they do go on to state that although it's too soon, too soon to know of this means of eff efficacy of the vaccine, it might imply that people with obesity need an additional booster dose to you know, get those antibodies levels um, to the required amount. Yeah, I think there's another factor to consider here is that, you know, it says Italian researchers have discovered that healthcare workers with obesity, I mean, I imagine these healthcare workers have been exposed to the virus in, in one way or another. They may not necessarily have caught it, but they've been exposed to it in terms of fighting on the front line against it and treating people. And uh, I'll be interested to see uh, a data set that uh, that is reflective of society as a whole rather than just healthcare workers because I wonder what it's like for those that haven't been as exposed to you know a hospital and clinical environment as as those that have been treating people with with coronavirus I'm I'm, I'm not exactly clued up on whether that will be you know whether that should be a factor or not but I, I, I'd love to see the data yeah no that's a really important point when you think about clinicians and healthcare workers what they're potentially exposed to on a daily level. It's not just COVID-19, it's other viruses and other diseases, uh, other airborne pathogens that you know, potentially get in their system. So if, if their bodies are working harder to combat a lot of different pathogens, then it may just be the case that they simply can't produce enough antibodies because they're working harder. But I, I'm a bit like you, you know, I'm not, I'm not a medical expert in, in that sense. Um, but yeah, a larger subset of a population a bit of data from that would be interesting to see how the vaccines work yeah exactly i think we could say that for a lot of these findings that we are discussing is that you know the more data that we eventually see uh the bigger the picture we get we're only seeing a partial picture at the moment because there's still a long way to go when the rollout in the uk although it's you know there's very positive numbers in excess of 20 million have received their first dose you know there's still a long way to go in terms of vaccinating the entire population here and then you've got the rest of Europe, the rest of the world, you know, there's there's still going to be many um, uh, many more pieces of evidence and discussion points to come out of this, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, I think we'll uh, move on to um, uh, the EU and AstraZeneca again. We, we apologise to our listeners for bringing this up once again, but it appears that Emmanuel Macron is now having to backtrack on his uh, little bit of fake newsery uh, when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, it seems that EU leaders, according to the Financial Times, are now being forced to, to talk up the vaccine. Uh, Reese, what do you make of this? Well, after all this sort of um, the fervour surrounding the EU and AstraZeneca, it seems, it, it, first of all, it seems silly that there was such a combative discussion um, at the beginning, I, I thought, just due to manufacturing constraint, constraints. You know, everybody's working really hard to to fight COVID-19, especially the pharmaceutical companies, so to sort of go against them at the start of them, their rollout was uncalled for, I, I thought. Um, 
the idea that they're backtracking now isn't surprising, considering that they need they need those numbers of vaccines to populate and um, to, to go throughout their populations. It's not just that, though, is it? I mean, there is this case of I mean, I've se- I've seen examples in Germany, for example, as well as as well as France, that uh, there is a reluctance among the population now if they're being offered the AstraZeneca vaccine. I know, I know, in Germany it was below the age of sixty-five that you were that it was, that it was approved for. So the, there's going to be question marks if it isn't universally approved in the first place, and then for leaders to actually. You know, come out with what they did at the time, and then uh, this entire yeah, fervor, as you put it, of of the row between the EU and AstraZeneca. It was what did they expect? In all honesty, <laughs> yeah, the idea of them talking it up now um, is, is is interesting, just because if there is a reluctance to get to get a vaccine from you know any any citizens in the country, that's worrying on a, on a larger scale because how do you know? Sort of what news is getting through to them on the efficacy of, of the vaccines and why why they're important and why they're life saving and needed and what type of fake news is getting getting through to them? Who are they listening to and why aren't they listening to their government? And more to the point, who are the government li- listening to and why are they not listening to the experts in the uh, in the early case with uh, AstraZeneca? But I think we'll um, move on from the AstraZeneca route now to quite happy news. I th- I think for uh, Johnson and Johnson. Um, Reese, you found you found this out before me, so I'll let you take this one away. Yeah, so as we know, Johnson and Johnson have been working on their one dose COVID nineteen vaccine for some time. When clinical data emerged on the efficacy of the vaccine, it was positive news, but it wasn't as positive as some of the other vaccines, which were seeing sort of like eighty five percent efficacy against preventing COVID nineteen or ninety percent and stuff like that. I think Johnson Johnson's was 67, and the latest data I've read is 72%, which is still quite quite high because I think a lot of the trials for vaccines have, um, uh, let's say, an endpoint of 60% as a baseline for what they're targeting. So it's still over the required amount, but um, it, you know, more welcome ne- welcome news now for Johnson Johnson is that the FDA has now approved their one dose vaccine. For COVID nineteen, um, based on the sixty six percent efficacy rating on a trial of forty four thousand people with severe COVID nineteen, um, no, sorry, that says it's to prevent moderate to severe COVID nineteen. the The thing about this vaccine is the fact that it's one dose; it's not based on the mRNA technology that the other vaccines are developed through, and it means that it's going to be able to be rolled out on a on a quicker level. It means that as soon as you've got your one dose, you will be protected to an extent from COVID-19. You won't have to go for a second dose. Manufacturing capacity won't be as impacted because they can just get, you know, batches of doses out, which are then used and we don't have to produce, say, 200 million to vaccinate a population of 100 million, etc. So positive news. And I think, as you alluded to, maybe last episode of a previous episode, you know, the, the more vaccines we have to fight this thing, then the better. So positive news that Johnson Johnson have got that. And I think they've now filed for regulatory approval throughout Europe in the UK through the uh, European Medicines Agency and the MR, MHRA. Yeah, I'm just uh, picking up a little bit more data that uh, that has emerged from from Johnson & Johnson. Is that it's 100% effective at preventing hospitalisation and death related to COVID-19. 
and as you pointed out, it boasts a 72% efficacy rate of preventing cases. Um, that, that's really, really encouraging news in, in that sense. It's, it's also encouraging, as, as you say, a, a one-shot va- vaccine. It's quicker to roll out. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting in the, in the future, given that the UK seems to have gone down the, we're going early on the two-dose two, the two dose, um, rollout, because as I think as we've alluded to, there is a vast amount of, um, of vaccines that have been procured by the UK. Uh, uh, more than enough for the uh, for the population, and uh, we'll, we'll come on to Covax in a bit. But I, th- I think it's really really interesting, given that the UK is over the thirty million Johnson and Johnson vaccines. I believe where where will that fit into um, in, in, into the plan? Basically, uh, as uh, as you said, they um, they have uh, submitted the paperwork for uh, regulatory approval in. The UK and the, the EU, um, um, um yeah, that, that, like I say, I'm, 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 very, I'm very interested to see how Johnson and Johnson is is rolled rolled out amongst the countries that have actually seen lots of two dose uh, vaccine rollouts already. And without knowing where our vaccines are within the country, you know, you know, um, how much of that capacity we've actually received through delivery right now because we've ordered say 400 million vaccines i don't know how much we've actually received it could be that the johnson and johnson vaccine is used as um sort of a a booster throughout maybe you know the towns and cities which haven't received a supply of vaccines we can get them out to the population as quickly and then we can vaccinate more people um, at a faster rate but it, it also may just be the case that the government is ensuring that it's got enough doses of uh, of COVID-19 vaccines more so than necessary but just in case it runs into any supply problems. Yes and uh, any uh, kind of uh, excess supply uh, we, we believe anyway I think should be uh, uh, given to poorer countries who are having trouble you know procuring these vaccines and I think that's what, what COVAX is for and we, we nicely segue onto that now as uh, as they have I believe uh, they published their first round of allocations. Uh, do you want to take us through this? Yeah, sure. So I just wanted to mention this because we've been speaking about it quite a bit on previous episodes. So COVAX, for any of the listeners who don't know already, um, was a scheme set up between the World Health Organization, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Initiative. Um, and it was designed for the equitable distribution of vaccines, have a fairer allocation of vaccines to developing countries and poorer countries who need them and who can't afford to, you know, buy buy a surplus amount of COVID-19 vaccines. And basically they raised a bunch of money to distribute 2 billion COVID-19 vaccines within 2021. In early February, I think there'd only been a couple of dozen of these vaccines given out across um, developing countries. But now that the suppliers started coming, COVAX has now started to roll out um, you know, a large amount of, of vaccines to um, a couple of countries in Africa. And I think it's something like 600,000 um, and then additional allocations, which will round it all up to 1.2 million doses, which is anticipated for the first quarter of 2021. So just encouraging news of that system is starting to be put into place properly now. 
and hopefully we can see more roundabout coverage of um of populations across the globe. Yeah, I think the 1.2 million figure that you refer to there is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which is anticipated for delivery uh, in the first quarter of 21. That was announced early last month, so early February, and the delivery for this round where they've seen, I think we've seen AstraZeneca vaccines being rolled out into, uh, they were the first round of allocations and and they've been rolled out to India, Ghana and the Ivory Coast, uh, judging by this UNICEF release that we've uh, we've got on our screens. Uh, but I, I think we'll emphasise this again, it's all well and good the UK being way way ahead of everybody else, and you know it's a success that the rollout has been so far in terms of getting the again this jab into an excess of twenty million people. But in terms of returning to normal, the more people across the world that are vaccinated, the better and the quicker that we can return to normal. Um, because then, uh, I think. Um, the issue of vaccine passports is, is going to be high on the agenda. Um, what, one thing that we actually didn't put on our agenda, Reese, I'm not sure if you heard this, was Cyprus have gone against the grain and, they, and they've basically said, if you're, if you're vaccinated, uh, we're, we're open to you. And I think that, I think that takes place in May. I've not, not got the details in front of me, but that's something off the top of my head that I heard on the radio earlier this morning. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I, I haven't heard that, but I suppose it, you know a lot of countries are going to be wanting tourism to return pretty much so their economies can get a little bit of a boost so it makes sense for somewhere like cyprus which i imagine has a big tourism industry to to want to do that as early as possible yeah and i think this takes us nicely onto future planning and uh uh at the start of start of march the start of this week that we're recording um uh, edinburgh airport uh, announced a rapid covid19 testing trial uh, to determine those fit to fly um, I think it's been lasting for this week so um, I'm, I'm hoping that in the near future we can uh, re- report on the, find- the findings of those trials because I think uh, I've been in contact with, with uh, PopDoc and, um, and I sent some questions off to them and it'd be great if they can report back to us uh, very soon because this is really interesting uh, because people are eager to get <laughs> basically to get, to get on holiday because they haven't been able to since you know the start of last year and even then, I doubt many people are going on holiday during the during the winter time. Probably yeah. going back, you know, towards the summer. But it's uh, this week long trial re- required a saliva sample, so there was no nasal swab, meaning a you know a less invasive testing experience. Uh, it's supposed to be delivering results within fifteen minutes. Um, We've got. I think I've got a couple of questions, and I'm sure you've got them too. But I think we need to know more about the test itself, uh, its efficacy. Uh, but I think it's fascinating that in order to get the, um, in order to reopen their economy, aviation is willing to go down this route. To, to my mind, because this has been going on for such a long time, it's good that these tests are being, you know, trialed and potentially rolled out throughout airports for future travel. Um, it's a shame that we couldn't have had this as, as as we know the borders were essentially open in the UK for flights for a long time. So it's it's a shame that these tests weren't around earlier earlier on in the in the pandemic to potentially reduce some of that transmission rate. I understand why, because they need to be developed, they need to be certified as um medically sound and stuff like that. Um 
but yeah, I, I think you hear stuff like this and you're like, oh, it's, a, it's a little too, too little too late, unfortunately, but good for going, going ahead um, and, and, and getting those um, confirmations of travel later on in the year. Yeah, I, I think we should um, point out that this is this is for the departure experience, um, whereas, you know, the, we're still baffled that there wasn't you know, rapid testing coming into airports at March last year, particularly when they were reporting of outbreaks in Italy and then there was flights from Milan just coming through into Heathrow Airport unchecked. Um, and, you know, the mind still boggles. But uh, this trial was open to staff and volunteers due to passenger numbers because obviously low passenger numbers at the moment and it was aimed to demonstrate how testing can be scaled at airports and hopefully adding to testing capability that was already in place at the airport. And I think the the way that people got the results, it, it was, it's digitally enabled, so they would have got the result via an app. Uh, basically, that would act as a vaccine passport, for want of a better term. Sorry, testing passport. Yeah, don't get me wrong, the technology is um, brilliant. It's really good news to see this type of thing being rolled out. Um, it, it, one thing, in, in my mind, it acts as a future example, in case something like this does happen again, for how we can go about getting travel to normal, um, back to normal as soon as possible, and how these types of technologies can be used in the future. Yes, absolutely. Um, but the the one other um, story I think we can we can touch upon that uh, this might be the last of the COVID talk or not uh, on this podcast. But uh, there's the issue of long COVID. Um, we've heard about people you know suffering for symptoms longer than they've had viral load, for example. Uh, and I think this could be a you know, a, a talking point for for some time to come in terms of how to treat and manage symptoms. But it's interesting that Orca have released a, a report, uh, you know, highlighting a, digital applications that can that can help manage these symptoms. Uh, have you had a chance to read through this? Yeah, I saw the story um, earlier this week. Orca, for anybody who doesn't know, are a, um, a group which essentially looks at healthcare apps and determines which ones are suitable, which ones have been fairly tested, and sort of which ones, you know, patients should be using, because right now the digital health space isn't that heavily regulated in terms of uh, knowing which apps can really, really clinically help you. And there's a few of these apps which I recognize already just from um, reporting on that sector for a while. So um, Cardia for heart palpitations, uh, Silver Cloud for mental health support, Sleepio for insomnia. Uh, all apps um, I, I, I know a little bit about and seem like they do a good job, especially Silver Cloud. Um, that's, a really, that's a really good one for mental health. And I know in Wales, actually, it's quite easy to access because you can, you, can, you can essentially do a digital referral to, to yourself if, if, you, if your practice um, offers it. So that's a good one to, to recommend. Um, the idea of long COVID as well is something that we've seen kicking around for, for some time now. It's hard to just discuss without having experienced that yourself, but there's been a lot of symptoms associated with it. Just people reporting tiredness all the time since they had it, um, headaches and stuff like that, and fatigue in general. So it must be awful to, to, to have those symptoms on a consistent basis. Now, I think there's one, one question here that uh, 
I think is you know flashing up on the uh, is just flashing at me, and that's one that is of the vaccine itself. Do you think that that I think well, I'm going to have to wait and and see if uh, there's any any research into this area about whether the vaccine itself is actually a uh, helps with long COVID symptoms as well as you know protecting the population against you know uh, against serious illness. I think just from in in layman's terms um from what i'd understand of it because the vaccine is designed to protect you against the infection if you've already caught covid then surely the damage the damage is already done unfortunately so how, however it is affecting your cells or your body perhaps that's where we need additional therapies to work so additional sort of future medicines that can tackle these types of symptoms yeah i mean either way this uh document that Orca have brought together feels like a pragmatic approach in terms of here's what is already out there. I'm sure there are many, many bright sparks in, in, in digital health sector and across life sciences who are trying to put together new innovations and new treatments to try uh, to, to tackle long COVID and, and its symptoms. Um, but I think we'll move away from um, the COVID scene for now. Um, well, uh, it's been a, another big week politically and i think people must be tired of us uh, talking about the, the political element in this but it's, it's really hard to separate um separate government from life sciences at the moment given given that they're dealing with a massive crisis that life sciences is, is helping to address really but uh this week we um we're recording this on the friday after the budget for, the, for those listening uh, because the budget was this week and a couple of interesting highlights, um, or you know, there's actually a couple of interesting things that weren't in it. Um, uh, um, there's a tip in the hat to um, Sean Linton from the uh, from the Independent, I think he's from on, on Twitter. He highlighted that there was just ten mentions of the NHS in the budget red book, five of social care, and the five social care mentions were because of the department's name. So that's essentially no mentions of social care, right? <laughs> <laughs> it would seem so. It would seem that uh, the plan for social care is, well, uh, it's nowhere to be seen just yet. And there's also discussion of a fall of £8 billion in NHS England's day-to-day spending, which that just doesn't seem right. Would that have anything to do with the investment that's been put into it throughout COVID-19? Is it adjusting for that or, or not? No, that's the thing. I, I, I really can't fathom it because I, I couldn't fathom it from the numbers either. From when, when I was looking at the book, I'm mm. just thinking that just didn't sit right. I mean, I don't. Um, I think it, it remains to be seen what the uh, knock-on effect is. But is is that one of the reasons why there's only a one percent pay rise for for healthcare staff as well? Or that I just found that very, very confusing. It does seem odd, especially the NHS has had a lot of focus put on it. On it throughout the pandemic, um, the one percent pay rise for nurses seems particularly insulting, especially when I was I was looking at some of the highlights of the budget, and there's I think over two hundred million pounds being spent on the Queen's Jubilee anniversary for celebrations. I mean, just come on. <laughs> I I must admit I didn't come across that. Um, well, but as quick, as critical as we have been of a couple of policies there. Uh, I think we should highlight you know, there have been a, a couple of things that have been welcomed by the industry. I mean, 
I mean, even though there were no mentions of of Brexit itself, there were a couple of you know references to the new the UK's new relationship with the European Union uh, because we um, I think we've actually seen you know free ports announced where free ports for those that don't know is the areas that will allow firms to import goods and then re-export them outside of normal tax and customs rules. So I can imagine that this would have a impact on the supply chain, the movement of materials and goods across all sectors, including life sciences. Um, fascinating move. A really important one for life sciences, um, in particular pharma as well, when medicines, for instance, if they have a short shelf life and need to be transported to patients, you know, throughout Europe or in, into the UK, they need to be delivered as quickly as possible. Um, and, and having a lorry full of sensitive medicines sat in um, Dover or Calais simply isn't uh, logistically sound. So the idea of three ports, that is good, if that removes some of the, uh, the regulatory barriers. Yeah, the... Um... Interesting idea, and I'm interested to see how they, uh, they they pan out. I think it's later on this year that we're expecting them to be uh, up and running. I think uh, there's, there's eight areas that have been announced. I think East Midlands Airport was one of them. Liverpool, uh, Solent or Southampton, for those that don't know. Um, I can't remember the others off the top of my head, unfortunately. Um, but that, that was just across England, by the way. I imagine that um, Wales and Scotland will announce theirs in due course. I think they're allocated one each. Uh, I, might, I might be wrong on that one. Um, but it, it is interesting to see um, a bit of reaction to that. I think we had um, Dr. Nick Katecha, the chairman of Morningside Pharmaceuticals, um, highlighted this, said there was... A, the first nod towards UK's post-transition period future with the approval of oh, seven free ports around the UK. Um, they, and they seem to be over the moon about the one at East Midlands Airport. And, he was, and they also said that it was great to hear the Chancellor champion life sciences and the health sectors by announcing his intention to turn the UK into a scientific superpower. I mean, it's not just necessarily life sciences, it's science as a whole, but... Um, how do you go about turning the UK into a scientific superpower? Well, the UK is all, all, already quite highly regarded as a leader in life sciences, right? It's got a lot of, it's got a lot, lot of hotspots even here in the northwest of England. You know, you've got places like Alderley Park. We've seen investment going into places um, like CPI in, in the northeast and Fujifilm Diosynth Biotechnologies for COVID-19 developments and stuff like that. Um, obviously, London, you have your finance sector, but you've also got um, things like, is it the, the Oxford Corridor um, and the Golden Triangle, which is, you know, the collection of universities and um, startups down, down there within life sciences. And then you just got to think about the work that universities do in terms of what we've seen from, you know, Oxford for its um, work with AstraZeneca and COVID-19. Uh, Ireland too has, has got a, a, a major med tech standing, and we have our big pharmaceutical companies as well. So I think we're, you know, we're already at a position now to call ourselves quite quite a strong lead, leader within the field of life sciences. Um, obviously, additional support and help by the government 
is always is always welcome. The standing around Brexit will be very important in how we trade goods with it with the EU. So the three ports are welcome too. I think we'll actually discuss the three ports in a bit more detail when we uh, when we discuss uh, regulation in a little bit more detail because you know the supply chain aspects there's all sorts. But you actually mentioned CPI there amongst um, when you were listing your, your hotspots around the country because CPI in the northeast have I've, I think I've been up to visit visit the site up there and it's and it is it is quite something. Um, from the budget, the government is investing five million pounds to support the develop of an mRNA vaccine library to help protect against new variants. Uh, CPI is a beneficiary of this, and this is something that you've featured on European pharmaceutical manufacturers. Yeah, so uh, uh, CPI is currently the only UK company which is capable of developing in-batch mRNA vaccines, which are going to be very important in helping fight against COVID-19 variants. Um, And the vaccine library will basically just form part of a rapid response facility that CPI say they can develop vaccines based off COVID-19 DNA in a matter of days, depending on the variant, uh, which is is good news. And obviously, I think the government just want to establish that as part of the budget, um, that support is still being put into, you know, COVID-19 and the the life sciences companies are helping to fight against it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there any more reaction from the budget which really, uh, which really caught your eye? Uh, it outlined a three hundred seventy-five million UK-wide future fund to invest in innovative companies, such as you know people in life sciences. Isn't surprising considering how much work the government's put into championing that uh, in industry. Um, and we've also launched a review of research and development tax reliefs to make sure the UK remains a competitive location for cutting-edge research, um, which is particularly important for, for those companies wanting to d- develop new therapies, new medtech innovations. R&D is obviously a big expenditure, expenditure for them, so that's welcome news. Um, in, in terms of uh, reactions to the tax relief, um, I think Pinson Masons, which is a UK law firm, they welcomed the news quite quite positively, and they said obviously the UK government wants to ensure that the UK remains a competitive location, and that reliefs continue to be fit for purpose, and that tax, taxpayer money is effectively targeted. And um, and then Penny Simmons from Pinsent Masons said the government has set itself a target of raising total investment in R and D to two point four percent of UK GDP by twenty twenty seven. As part of this, tax reliefs for R&D are widely seen as being a significant incentive to encourage such investment. So it's welcomed that the Treasury now wants to ensure that the reliefs remain effective. Um, Overall, just good news for anybody wanting to conduct research in the UK. And hopefully it will help the the country remain a good location for life sciences and research in, in in general. Yeah, and for that, you need the finest minds. And I thought it was interesting that we got a comment from uh, the head of UK immigration of Field Fisher, uh, that was uh, Gillian McKerney. Um, they, uh, one particular line stood out is that the life sciences and tech sector in the UK are highly reliant on migrant workers, and many are reporting a Brexit brain drain. So this announcement will see a reinvigoration to the UK sectors with technology at their core. Because uh, for those that didn't keep a close eye on the budget announcement, 
uh, had unsponsored points-based visa to uplift the innovation. Should, um, sorry, had point, uh, unsponsored points-based visa um, because you know the UK has now got a points-based immigration system, um, which has left a, a few interest, a few industries uh, looking a little uncertain. But the this is something that is is welcomed in order to attract attract talent from elsewhere, even in post Brexit Britain. Um, I'd be fascinating to see how how that works in practice, because you know is that going to be a case of you know, the the best scientists, the best people in R and D, the best people in manufacturing medical devices and vaccines? Are they are they going to be here for a set period of time? Is the time here unlimited? You know, well, I think that remains to be seen because of that. That, that policy could change on a hoof. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because if you speak to a lot of people within life sciences, you know, you know, most people I've spoken to say that collaboration is part of the process in that collaborative research initiatives between the UK and the EU, particularly amongst universities, were um key to a lot of the development work that went into you know new innovations. So, uh, yeah, like I said, interesting to see how it will how it will work going ahead. Hopefully the UK does remain a collaborative place for life sciences, and that Brexit doesn't stimmy that in any way. And um, but it remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean the UK has already taken a step away from from Europe in life sciences in terms of it's no longer a member of the European Medicines Agency, and the headquarters have moved out of London. I mean I know there's been a lot of uh, a lot of um, let's just say victory lap running from from the government about not being part of the EMA because of the documented problems with vaccine rollout in Europe compared to you know, Britain's position at the moment. But I think that's, that'll be a very short-sighted view to say that Britain is better off, better off out of it because Britain, Britain within the EMA there could have actually you know, driven forward a better overall response. But I mean, I'll step down from the soapbox. No, no, you, you raise some good points as if Britain having a voice within that sector is quite important for the betterment of, 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 the, of the industry overall, potentially. Um, and in defence of the EMA, they're just doing their due diligence in terms of their hesitancy to approve any vaccines quickly, as we've seen in the, in the UK. They're just simply looking at the data with a more scrutinous eye than perhaps we were. Um, maybe it hasn't worked out this time, but that's what those agencies are there to do. They're there to protect public health. And if it takes longer to get a medicine into, into your body because of that, there shouldn't be any complaint, any complaint, uh, any complaining really, um, simply because of all the variables that can go into medicine development. We need to ensure that it's safe for everybody. Yeah, um, I think this is a pretty good point to actually finish on. I mean, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, in terms of yeah, we, we've seen. They're trying to make the business case in this budget of you know, Britain is still a very, very good place to do business in life sciences. We have got a fantastic sector in life sciences. There's no doubt about that. I think Sunak's trying to um, uh, create the economic conditions to try and make that as appealing as possible. Yeah, You can, you can argue whether he's gone, gone about the right way, but I think that's fundamentally his aim. But is it all... It's, is it a case of it's all well and good having the business conditions, but you still need that element of cooperation with agencies like the the EMA who are on our doorstep? Well, I think think so. Partly the case is is that um, 
you know, when Brexit was announced, we saw this hesitancy from UK life sciences firms. We saw a few pull out because the regulatory market wasn't going to be as stable. Is that in, in Europe? How we, you know, companies were worried about how they were going to get products into Europe and into the UK because of all the regulatory burdens and additional paperwork that were going to be filed. Um, yeah, it's good to see that business conditions are being put in place. But like like I said earlier, collaboration is a key part to life sciences. The best work is done with you know diverse teams from different perspectives and who've worked in different areas. And it's a shame that we potentially might lose some of that because of Brexit. Yeah, uh, I'm inclined to agree, but it's an in, it's something that we're going to keep a close eye on over the course of the next uh, weeks, months, even years. Um, but I, th- I think it's also worth uh, flagging that we will actually be dis- discussing changing regulations on one podcast episode coming in the future. So you'll hear more from us on that, um, including you know European regulations, UK's regulations, changing regulations everywhere. Uh, that might be a bit of a dry listen, but we'll try and make it as fun as possible. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank you all very much for listening. Reese, thank you for your company, albeit it's still remote. Uh, you never know. Once we get a job a jab in our arm, we might actually be able to see each other very soon. But thank you very much for your company once again. And that was the MedTalk podcast. You've been listening to the MedTalk podcast. Make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify or iTunes. Thanks for listening.